Welcome to Conversation 360 Podcasts in this podcast series called Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what is taking place between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, but you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. I should tell you, you may hear some background noise in some of our conversations, but just know that they're an indication that these are not studio-based discussions, but unscripted, candid conversations, often across the world, with people who have a lot to share about the transformational changes they see taking place between Asia and the West. This next conversation is one of those. I'm in New York talking by phone with Ian Thubrin, who is in Australia. Take a listen to something he has to say. If you think that China is going to develop in the next 10 to 20 years in the same way that other Asian countries like Japan or Korea developed in the 50s and 60s, or the West developed over 200 years since the Industrial Revolution, that's an absolute nonsense. Those are the words of Ian Thubrin, founder and CEO of Asia Strategies, a company that helps brands understand and engage the new breed of wealth in Asia. I first met Ian in Hong Kong when he was president of the media powerhouse TBWA, which under his leadership grew to be the fifth largest region of TBWA globally. English by birth, he spent several years living and working in Hong Kong, Shanghai, and Singapore, and has now relocated with his family to Perth in Western Australia. He's truly knowledgeable about China. Here's one of the things he advises. We have to stop looking at China through the lens of the West and start recognizing that it is a very different, unique place. It's come to where it's come over 30 years. You know, for when was Deng Xiaoping was in Shenzhen, I think, 1979. I mean, it's a very, very short period of time. And we have to almost change the paradigm that we have, that, to change the understanding that we have about how consumers develop and how they evolve. Because if we think that China is going to do it in the way that it happened in the West over 200 years or East Asia over 50 or 60 years, we get, we'll be out in the cold. Ian's bullish outlook for China's future is clear. I'm bullish about China's future because a country that has done what China has managed to do in the last 30 years, and I agree there are, there are compromises in terms of some liberties and so on, but to, to overall macro to achieve what they've achieved is nothing beyond mind-blowingly extraordinary. And Ian dismisses China bashing by Westerners. I personally do not have the distrust that many people in the West have of China in the sense that China, I do not think that China exists only to get out and get its tendrils into the West and steal all its IP and eventually dominate through technology and military and economy and everything else. I just don't see that. Our conversation covers a wealth of topics on what's really happening in China these days, so let's get started. Welcome to Conversation 360 podcast, and especially to this Asia and the West episode, Ian. Thank you, Susan. It's kind of you to have me. Well, so you've lived and worked in Asia for 25 years, and now I guess having moved back to Australia, you um, can actually look back on this experience in some ways, retrospectively. But when we talk about the conversations taking place in and between Asia and the West, what does that bring to mind for you? What does that mean? 
Um, yeah, I think it's interesting because um, I, I wouldn't want to be in a position to talk about, you know, Asia and the West. Those are Asia is, as you know, massive, and the West is even, even bigger, at least geographically. So, I suppose my more specific uh, point would be about um, how we in the West look at Asia, and what's changed for me is the fact that as a Westerner living in Asia, living in China. Um, I felt very connected with what was going on. Um, having moved away from China, I've had to make a real effort to continue to be involved with and up to speed with what's going on there. Now, you may think that that sounds you know, a bit of a truism, but I, I think that it is important because in the West, we have, uh, what do you call it, sort of broad sweeping statements that people make about Asia or China and their intentions but they're not necessarily rooted in a deep understanding of, of the reality of what's going on there. And so for me, uh, the, the effort has to be to keep current in Asia, keep going back to Asia, keep visiting Asia, keep talking to people in Asia, keep trying to keep my finger on the pulse of it, because scanning the internet and watching CNN is not going to do it. When I lived in Asia, it was very different. You were, you were there, your finger was on the pulse the whole time. Now it's a much more... Um, it's, it's much more uh, conscious. So in those days, when I lived there, I was sort of very much seen as the expert. People would fly in from Paris or New York or wherever and say, well, you know, you're running Asia or you're running China. What's really happening? And, and you tell them and, and, and they would say, wow, that's interesting. And then they would go away and hopefully it would influence the direction of the company or, or th the way things were going. In, in, and I can't say the West, but in Australia, where I'm now based, there is a fundamental, total lack of understanding, really, about Asia and, uh, and, and China. And I sort of separate the two. So, for example, people will say, well, I'm interested in launching my product in Asia. And you go, well, OK, apart from the fact that that's, you know, three billion people in four or five time zones, are we talking about ASEAN? Are we talking about China? If we're talking China, are we talking North, Middle or South? Are you looking more at the Indian subcontinent or Japan or whatever? There seems to be this sort of view that Asia is this sort of, I don't know, this sort of blob of just geography and economy and we just need to be in it. And I think for me, that was a, when you're in Asia, the Philippines is so different from Pakistan, which is so different from the North of China, which is so different from Indonesia. We very rarely talked about Asia, except as a sort of maybe a geographic area that our companies covered. Whereas here, people seem to talk about Asia in a, in, in a sort of overly generalist way. Um, and I think that also influences the, the very real fear that people in the West have of Asia. But probably more specifically here, I refer to China, um, because a lot of what they see is filtered through the lens of the media. And the media, given the nature of media, tend to report news in sort of sound bites. And so the reality is you're probably getting less in-depth, insightful knowledge, unless you, you know, read those kind of publications. If you're simply looking at the news coverage or if you're simply looking at the odd magazine or newspaper article, you're probably only getting the more sensationalist side of it. And that tends to be 
the newsmaking side. And so I think that can sway opinion to quite a large extent. So, so let me ask you this. So it, it's clear that the Western and, and let's say Australian as well, understanding of what they think of as Asia is really quite immature, certainly um, a, a, a not very sophisticated. How about the other way around? How accurate is the, let's say China, since that's a place in which you've spent a lot of time, how accurate is the Chinese understanding of the West? Do they have a better understanding of us than we do of them? Um, I would say, oh, that's a int very interesting question, not one I've ever really thought of before, but I would, I would have to say on balance, yes. And I would say that for, for, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, um, China is the massively developing economic market and has been for 30 or 40 years. There is not a major Western multinational that is not have some business in China, pursuing some business in China, looking at China in some way, going over to China um, in that way. Um, if you think about, uh, take um, Huawei, which is that big telecom company, out of uh, Shenzhen. When I was working with them, there was 80,000 people. There's probably 200,000 people now. They got knocked back in Australia. They got knocked back in the US because of so-called security issues. So what did they do? They expanded through Asia, through the Middle East, and into Europe. So many people in Australia or the US view Huawei as some kind of a threat because the government said, we're not going to give them a license. They're a security issue. So they've then gone out, and they have then expanded into areas which don't necessarily immediately touch Australia or, or, or the UK or, or, or America. If you look at it the other way around, where do people buy food, fast food, Western fast food? They go to Ken, in China, they go to Kentucky Fried Chicken, they go to McDonald's. What do they wear on their feet? They wear Nikes, they wear Adidas. They also wear Anta, their own local brand. But the Western brands are very big and very powerful and, 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 and dominant in China as are a lot of the Western multinationals and firms. If you think about business services, if you think about IT and so on and so forth. So I think there's far more Western involvement in um, um, China than there is necessarily Chinese involvement outside. I think outside, I, I say outside because I'm now outside here. Um, I think that a lot of our, what, we, what we are influenced by is media, uh, and that tends to be on balance negative. And secondly, um, a lot of it, and one of the things I'm, I'm doing now here is, is working um, as a commissioner for tourism, Western Australia, based on uh, tourism. And tourism is often, or Chinese tourists are often one of the only points of contact that people in the West will have with um, Asia or the Chinese. And that's in its infancy, you know, and, and, and therefore here we talk about being China ready for the tourists, which kind of in a patronizing way we think means slippers and noodles and maybe wireless, which is absolute nonsense. But it shows that general cultural lack of, um, perhaps I should say, understanding or affinity that there is. So I'm much more acutely aware of the difference between East and West now being back in the West than I ever was when I was in the, in the East. Mm, interesting. So let's talk about what's on the mind of many people who do have an interest specifically in China, and that is the slowdown in the Chinese economy. From your yeah. perspective, where you see it, what's happening and how is the impact being felt in the industries that you know well? 
your Asia Strategies business, for example, focuses on the new breed of wealth in Asia. What, what, what's happening? Um, well, you're right. Um, on the one hand, there is a concern that as China slows, as the construction boom slows, uh, potentially China needs less iron ore, less resources. So on that one hand, um, people start to worry. But on the other hand, um, and again, I speak from an Australian perspective, the demand for, China, uh, for Australian agricultural produce has never been higher and is getting greater by the day. The number of Chinese tourists coming down here and spending their renminbi has never been greater and it's getting greater by the day. We're seeing uh, more airlines flying. We're seeing more trade links established. So, yes, everyone sees that China is potentially slowing down. But China is still, what is it now, 1.3 billion people, the world's second biggest economy. I mean, it's a massive market. And even if it slows down to 6 or 7%, well, Western Australia, we declined 4% last year. So that's still pretty effective, you know, impressive growth. So I think that, so I think that, I think that whilst everyone is aware, acutely aware of China slowing down, which is not necessarily a bad thing, by the way, there are so many areas um, and so many industries where we are only just beginning or gearing up that I do not see that as a major impediment uh, for, for us moving forward. So how about the other way around? That is the individuals in China. We know that people born in the last 30 years there have been living in a country where growth has been exponential and it's been annual. I mean, every year things have just gotten better. Now suddenly there is this slowdown, even though it's still a massive economy. Is there a shift in the mood there among this new middle class? Are they less uh, sanguine about the government taking care of them? Do you see any shift there? Um, I think it's an interesting question on two levels. Firstly, because there's always been a unwritten, unspoken contract between the government and the people. The government saying we will I mean, they've done an amazing job in taking, what, 400 million people above the poverty line in 20 years or something. But saying to, saying to people in general, um, we will continue to improve your economic situation, bring jobs, bring opportunities, bring, bring rising wealth and lifestyles and education and, and, and so on. In return for which, you know, it, it, it is a um, communist state where the government is all powerful. So there's a sort of unwritten, unspoken payoff or contract between those two things. Um, I, I suppose a tension point is coming in that as people have got uh, richer, have got better lifestyles, so their expectations have grown, um, their exposure to the world despite the Great Firewall has grown, international links and involvements and companies and, and all that has grown, and the government is now no longer able to guarantee the kind of growth of prosperity that they did before. So I suppose, therefore, at a, a sort of macro level, there is potentially um, some cause for concern that uh, there could be some disaffection, potentially, um, amongst the ranks of the rising uh, and, and, and wealthier middle classes. So yes, on the one hand, I think potentially that might be, be the case. I think that the other thing I noticed, certainly in the time I was there, was that there were very few executives that worked for me that did not have some form of desire to send their children overseas in terms of education or potentially look at investments overseas or look at job opportunities overseas or connecting with the world, even if it was only from travel. 
you know, we had young people that were quite prepared to quit their job at 23, get a backpack and go traveling in Europe for three months. So the stereotypical typical view of the Chinese tour group was, was, was really turned on its head. And I think that's a very healthy thing because uh, every, the, the, the people that I worked with in China had this sort of lust for adventure and lust for discovery and lust for seeing what the wider world held. But of course, then they, went, then they go back to China. And so there's a careful balance between wealth and prosperity and those more, more esoteric or, or issues of, of freedom and liberty. And if, the, if you go abroad and you sort of experience those and go back, then you can often look at what you've gone back to in a very different light. So I think there are some potential there for some tension. Um, but I wouldn't say it was entirely just due to an economic slowdown. I, I would say it was more a facet of the evolving and mature, maturing of, of China and, and the society that, that, that there is, is there. Well, some say uh, that the um, China's brightest and wealthiest are leaving the country. We certainly see big investments in residential real estate, for example, in the UK and the US and Canada and elsewhere. Is that, is that really evident or is this, it's such a big place you don't need to have too many of those people uh, before it becomes something that people think is, is uh, a real trend. Do you see any evidence of that? People actually saying, look, I've made my money, I'm, I'm out of here. Um, to be honest, I don't. Um, I do see uh, and no one can be blind to the massive amounts of apartments in Melbourne and Sydney and New York and, you know, San Francisco, wherever else it is that are bought by Asian and, and in many cases, Chinese investors. They call them here zombie apartment blocks where, you know, you look at them after six o'clock at night and a, a third of the lights are on because the other flats have all been purchased, but they're purchased purely as foreign investments. No one's ever actually going to live in them. Um, is that evidence of smart? middle-class people doing well, earning money, and then fleeing the country. I, I'm not so sure I see that. All I'm, I'm saying, I suppose, is that I see, I saw when I worked there, and I see when I'm down here, evidence of people looking beyond uh, the borders of China to a world in which they are a part and a world in which they will play a very big part. Now, whether some of them want to leave, some of them want to have their kids educated abroad, some of them want to work abroad, all that's happening, I don't see that there is, and again, if you've got figures and prove me wrong, I'll be happy to accept it, but I don't see a sort of massive exodus of people to the West out of some form of either lust for what the West has to offer or despair at the state that China's in. I just don't see that. I see a far more pragmatic um, uh, sort of uh, almost belonging to or being a part of the world stage with wealth that now enables them to potentially travel or to consider working abroad. You know, I, when I was at um, uh, Omnicom, we used to beg the foreign offices to take the Chinese employees into the UK, into France, into America for two to three years, and then take them back to China so that they blended the best of the East and the West. What tends to happen in a lot of multinationals is that you chuck your Westerners into China so that they understand China and then they come out again. Hopefully we can get in this, in this global connected world that we're in, hopefully we can get Westerners going into Asia, Asians coming out of Asia into the West, 
and get a much more blended, um, much more blended series of companies and enterprises than that, that much more one-way thing that we had before. That does seem to be the conversation that we're all aiming for, I think. So for those who are remaining in China, and it seems like it's the, it's the bulk of them, uh, some might say that a crucial requirement, maybe more crucial than ever, is for China to become truly innovative in order to solve the issues that it does have, like environmental pollution, healthcare, and so on. And I remember your saying at one time when we were talking in Hong Kong that the Chinese view innovation differently than the West, more as a measure of incremental improvement rather than a highly disruptive kind of innovation, a Steve Jobs thing. Do you still feel that way? And are uh, there are companies in China that seem to me to be highly innovative in either uh, of those definitions. What, what's your thinking about that? Yeah, I, I remember that conversation. And uh, I think that was probably a truism, you know, three years ago when we had it. I think that, uh, again, China evolved very, very quickly. Um, I, I seem to remember that conversation was largely around the internet and the way that things like Sina Weibo or, or Baidu or were, were sort of, in a way, kind of a almost a combination of Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and, and, and innovating in that sort of sense. But then you've got to look like a company like, well, Huawei, which I mentioned earlier, or Alibaba, and you kind of go, whoa, there's no way that you can say that those are just sort of incremental plays. They are amazing Chinese companies, totally understand the opportunities that technology and the changing uh, Chinese environment can bring to them. Uh, and are prepared to do whatever they whatever they can to do that. I mean, Alibaba is a great example. Equally, you've got smartphone companies that produce Me Too products, but do it at a cheaper price point and sell an enormous amount of them. So I, I don't think I would now say that either China is incredibly innovative or is, is not innovative. It's more of a copier. Um, I found out something very interesting the other day on a startup thing I'm mentoring, which is. Everyone thinks Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. He didn't. He found the light bulb and he found a way of commercializing it. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting because to me what that says is that the brightest idea, the most innovative technology is completely useless unless you commercialize it. And I think China is absolutely brilliant at commercializing it, whether it's incremental innovation or new innovation. China can commercialize it in a way that no one else can. Chinese are extraordinary business people, entrepreneurs, enterprise managers, that they will, whether it's out of the box, brand new, or whether it's an incremental innovation, they will commercialize it and turn it into uh, amazingly successful businesses. Did Alibaba invent e-commerce? I don't know. Did Amazon? I don't know. Did Jack Ma copy Amazon? I have no idea. But what I do know is that through innovation invention, uh, and commercialization, Jack Miles turned Alibaba into the world's, and I think it's now listed in the stock exchange in New York for billions, one of the world's, or if not the world's, leading e-commerce company. Yeah, it's quite a story, especially from a former school teacher. I, I just love that story. <laughs> so where will the this all this increased innovation coming from in China? I used to think, well, there are so many expats there. They bring in Western thinking. And now we know, of course, that there are so many young Chinese being educated in the West that they return, as you said, and eventually bring uh, things that they've learned here, there. Or is it going to be homegrown? Um, and if so... How, how will that happen? 
because they have well, an educational system that doesn't really um, lend itself to uh, critical thinking. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, that's often said, isn't it? The sort of learn by rote rather than creative thinking and so on. Um, I, I think if, if you, in any business, if you're thinking, well, you know, we're happy with where we are, but we want to grow. Or even if you say, I want to start a business, where are you going to start it? You're going to start it in your environment, in your town, in your city, in your province, with a technology or a business model that you're comfortable with and that you know. You're not going to say, the way to riches is for me, based in Guizhou, to go and start a business in Nottingham in the UK. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So let's leave aside the massive multinationals and let's look at sort of middle class or more uh, entrepreneurial type um, businesses at, at that sort of a level. I, I would have thought that if you are a smart 20, 25 year old, young, entrepreneurially minded kind of guy in China, you're probably lucky that you've got the backing of a couple of parents and still probably four grandparents if you're from the one child thing. There's a lot of money, there's plenty of wealth to invest. Where are you going to start a business? You're going to start it in what you know, where you know. If you're super successful, you'll grow it, you'll develop it. If you get to kind of Alibaba status, you undoubtedly have massive investments outside in other companies and so on and so forth. I don't, I personally do not have the distrust that many people in the West have of China in the sense that China, I do not think that China exists only to get out and get its tendrils into the West and steal all its IP and eventually dominate through technology and military and economy and everything else. I just don't see that. I think China is uber pragmatic. I know that they obviously want to be the world's superpower, certainly one of the top super, two superpowers in the world. There is the you know 100-year plan for 2049, and there's the four criteria that they want to dominate in, and I know that one of those is military, and there's all this concern about the South China Sea and so on and so forth. But I, I would have thought that the leaders of China spent a vast amount of time worrying and thinking about the commercial strength of China internally, domestically, the shift from investment to consumption over simply dominating the West at all costs. But outside, you'd think that the only thing on their plate or their agenda is how do we screw the West? I, I, I don't think that that is the case in China. It might be a part of it. It might be an important part of their future goals and desires and, and growth plans. But I don't think it's the motive behind a lot of what people are doing Certainly, people that I knew that were grow, starting and growing and hopefully building successful businesses, they were doing it, I think, for the same reasons that anyone does it anywhere in the world. They want to work for themselves. They want to grow something of importance. They want to create wealth and have a good life. Um, in China, perhaps the memory of the life that was not so good you know, four or five decades ago is still a bit more recent and still a powerful motivator for change, whereas in the West, we seem to be getting into much more politics of hate and envy and so on, but I know that's not the subject of this podcast. Um, but I, I think that um, I, I think that the suspicion that the West in general has of China is founded to one extent, and certainly the military aspirations are a concern. But I do not think that Chinese people spend their every which every second of every day thinking we're doing everything we can to get the West. I, I just don't buy that. Uh, it almost seems narcissistic on the West part that we could, that, that we occupy that big place in their brain. But it, it sounds like ultimately that you are 
bullish about China's future. Am I reading that correctly? And if so, what's the biggest source of your optimism about China's future? Well, I'm, I'm bullish about China's future because a country that has done what China has managed to do in the last 30 years, and I agree there are, some, there are compromises in terms of some liberties and so on, but to, to overall macro to achieve what they've achieved is nothing beyond mind-blowingly extraordinary. Um, to be shifting from the world's factory to a major consumption um, and service-orientated uh, economy, which they will achieve, not without bumps and ups and downs, is amazing. I thoroughly welcome the blend of the ability for the West to go into China and invest and benefit from that market, as I do welcome China expanding uh, outside, whether it's through organic growth or acquisition or tourism or agriculture and so on. Don't get me wrong, I totally have sympathy with people in Australia, for example, that feel a frisson of concern about a Chinese company coming here and buying, you know, a million acres or million square kilometers uh, or hectares, I forget that what it was, of, of pastoral land. Or only three days ago, um, the government knocking back a Chinese company trying to out of this electrical grid in New South Wales for so-called security reasons. I get those sensitivities. However, the, the, the more that the West interacts with uh, and can sell and market its products into China, the more that it can attract outward investment and, and tourism and business from China, the better for the world. And that's the way the world has grown over the last three or 400 years. I see no reason why it should change. It just strikes me, particularly now being in the West, uh, having left China 18 months ago, that the level of skepticism and fear in the West um, of not only China, but other aspects of Asia is, is so great. And in my view, probably unfounded. I don't want to sound like a totally naive idiot, um, but I think there's a hell of a lot more benefit that we can get from peaceful cooperation and growth together than from this sort of, and I don't want to say racist, it's not racist, but this sort of, sort of almost nationalistic, um, uh, uh, nationalistic uh, negativity that seems to be seeping in, particularly into the Western political conversation. Well, it, it seems that the more conversations like this that we can have that actually have participants who, as you say, blend their their wisdom, uh, the better it is, and especially if it can be face-to-face -face so that people can really experience uh, these other places in, in a way that gives them a global view as opposed to a narrow nationalistic one. I, I, I couldn't agree more. So that's why you're optimistic. What will China's major challenges be in this future picture? What will be the well, things that are toughest? Well, I think the biggest one is is that contract we talked about earlier between or the unwritten contract between government and people. Like we, we the government, will continue to improve your lifestyle and economic situation. But in return, we expect you to abide by the system that we have in place. I think that'll be, a, and it is already a major strain. Environment is a massive one, really massive. Um, I mean, not only is it hard to convince Western expats to go into China, it's hard to keep a lot of smart Chinese in China because of the pollution and environmental situation. I think, I mean, it's, it's the food supply chain is severely challenged, which is a great opportunity for Australian agribusiness, but it's still a major water. It's a massive issue for China, which no one ever really speaks about. Um, but water is a huge issue. Um, 
China getting potentially, I mean, I've, I've, we've seen this happen with many other countries in the world, so I'm not having a go at China here, but if China were to use a little bit of foreign policy muscle in order to overcome some short-term domestic issues, that could be a worry because of the fear and suspicion that there is outside China. So, you know, there are many, many challenges ahead of China and China's relationship with the West. But I'd have to say, overall, if you look at what has been achieved in the last 30 years, and if you look at the potential for the next 30 years, um, I would, yeah, I think I would be definitely optimistic. Bullish is a very Martin Sorrell kind of word, but but let's... <laughs> I'm, he's, I think he's on... He's, he's always said, I'm a China bull. If you just look at the macro fact, that by 2049, China wants to move another 300 million people from rural to urban. And if you look at the volume of stuff that means they're going to require, there's a huge amount of optimism for continued growth and economic development in China. And with that, sensitively and properly done, opportunities for the West in China and for China in the West. Um, and I, I think I applaud the kind of conversations you're having here, because the more dialogue, the more understanding between people that there is, as opposed to governments or bureaucracies. You know, when you see people talking, they tend to be able to see eye to eye in a relatively straightforward way. I mean, you know, we haven't mentioned the Olympics yet, but if you look at Rio, you see millions of different cultures and people collaborating and competing and sharing in that extraordinary bacchanal fest that's happening in Rio. And you see the odd jibe about drugs and that sort of stuff. But overall, humans are humans. And the more that humans talk to humans, as opposed to having bureaucracies talk to bureaucracies or governments standing off against governments, you tend to get, um, you tend to get uh, a much more realistic and a much more, uh, what's the word, sort of, I don't know, just sensible way forward. Uh, that, 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 that's so well said. Well, one question that you brought up of water as a massive issue. What is the crux of the water issue in China? Just so people who are listening to this will know. So, yeah, what, so a, a very dear friend of mine um, based in Beijing runs um, a, a water charity, a water awareness charity. And the fact is that China just doesn't have enough water. And as we all know, a vast amount of China is arid desert. That impedes all sorts of things, but particularly their ability to grow enough food to feed their growing population. Therefore, they have to look outside for, for, for food sources. And so um, if you do extrapolate that on, um, and if people in the West were to ever deny China access to food sources or supply, uh, which is largely a result of the lack of water that they need, uh, that would be potentially a major fissure. Um, now, China's not stupid. They recognize that. Um, one of the reasons that they have significant investors in, into Africa is exactly for that reason. Um, it's a brilliant move. You know, the, the obvious, everyone says, well, China will want to go to the US and dominate or go to Western Europe. They go, nah, we're quite happy with Asia, Middle East, Africa. And I mentioned Huawei and many other of the companies as well. So water is a big issue because of China's semi-arid status. Um, and water then leads to uh, all sorts of issues, not least food, and that leads to potential stress points later on. So, you know, you people always tend to look at 
like in Australia, there was this big drama about the company coming down here and trying to buy the 100 million kilometers of, of arable land to grow cows for beef for China. Well, look at the root cause. What is, why can't they do it in China? Well, they can't do it in China because it's, it's a lot of it's semi-arid desert. Why is that? Because there's enough water. That's the main problem. So perhaps if we have a greater water awareness or solution to the water problem, it's about three or four steps upstream, but it may have a very big impact later on down the line. That's fascinating. So is there any other issue that you'd like to mention or that you think is especially important regarding this whole East meets West arena? Um, I, I guess there is one thing I would suggest, and I've, I've learned this. Well, I obviously experienced it during my time in China, but I've observed it now sitting down here in Australia. And it is that we in the West tend to think that China will evolve and develop in the same glacial pace that we do. And that may sound a strange word to use when you think about the Internet and technology and iPhones and all the rest of it. Um, but if you think that China is going to develop in the next 10 to 20 years in the same way that other Asian countries like Japan or Korea developed in the 50s and 60s, or the West developed over 200 years since the Industrial Revolution. That's an absolute nonsense. It happens in almost the blink of an eyelid. And so we have to stop looking at China through the lens of the West and what we consider to be norms. And let me give you one very small example. So when I was uh, working on Australia tourism in China 10 years ago, our marketing was all based around bragging rights. So me and my family in front of the Sydney Opera House or the Melbourne Bridge. And there is still an aspect of that. But what we're seeing now is that younger people in their early 20s, yeah, why would I want to go to the Opera House? Everyone's been there. I want to go to the Kimberleys. I want to go to the Pilbara. I want to go up to Darwin, the Northern Territories. I want to go to the Outback. They're looking for experiences beyond a photograph or what everyone else has already had. That has happened in three, four years. It's lightning fast that that change happens. So we've got to stop looking at 20-year-old backpackers and thinking, nah, they don't have any money. They have a lot of money. So we have to stop looking at China through the lens of the West and start recognizing that it is a very different, unique place. It's come to where it's come over 30 years. You know, for when was Deng Xiaoping was in Shenzhen, I think, 1979. I mean, it's a very, very short period of time. And we have to almost change the paradigm that we have, to change the understanding that we have about how consumers develop and how they evolve. Because if we think that China is going to do it in the way that it happened in the West over 200 years or East Asia over 50 or 60 years, we get, we'll be out in the cold because it's happening very, very much more quickly than that. And we need to be prepared for that. Well, thank you, Ian. This has just been a delight to share your perspectives. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings. And the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, 
www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast. That's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast. And my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.